right in saying you seem to feel a sense of um, responsibility for the story or how the story is told or reflects on the family? Look, I care about uh, anything that affects the family's reputation, and I shouldn't, because all families have got skeletons in their cupboards, or most, a lot, some, a few. <laughs> Hi, I'm Frances Morgan. This is The Folded Lie. A story about a century-old killing and how it affected two families, the Flanagans and the Werns. If this is the first time you've tuned in, I suggest you go back and listen to episode one. Okay. Slip that in if you drive seven hours northwest of Sydney, you'll come to Bingara, or Bingra, as the locals say. About a thousand people live here. It's where five generations of John Wern's family have grown up. John's giving me a tour. He's a descendant of Reginald Wern, the man who killed Mervyn Flanagan at the height of the Great Strike of 1917. As former mayor of Bingra, John's used to giving this tour including for politicians like former Premier of New South Wales, Bob Carr. Yeah, no, he stayed at my place twice and had Helena each time. And sitting around the, the uh, dinner table and the breakfast table talking was the most interesting experience. I bet. His intellect is He's very well absolutely giant. Politics runs in John's blood. Now I rise across there. Moor is down that way. Queensland's less than two hours due north. If you look along the tree line, you'll see a shiny roof right down there. That's where I was born. That was the that was a Beaufort homestead. That's where Walter lived. Beaufort was Walter Wern's property. He's John's grandfather. Hound-faced with a large moustache, Walter never drank alcohol. But he was charismatic and able to entertain a whole room. At the time of his death, Walter had amassed 5,000 acres around Beaufort. Much of this land was sold after he died. John and his wife live on a parcel of land that forms a fraction of what Beaufort once was. Walter was elected into state parliament just a few months before the strike hit. At the time of the killing, he had his whole political career ahead of him. If his younger brother Reg was found guilty of murder or manslaughter, it could have complicated things. Francis, has Lucy taxed us still involved in...? Yes. OK. Lucy is a labour historian. She first wrote an account of the killing in the 1980s. I've, I've got a, an account that she wrote about it. Yes. And some of some of what she put up there I thought was really unbalanced. In the account John's referring to, Lucy sets out to honour a forgotten martyr. Lucy sees Merv as a hero of the class war and a victim of justice. Reg, she says, received kid gloves treatment at the hands of the law. She mentions murder, that Merv Flanagan was murdered and things like that, where we've got a totally different view of how the incident happened. Didn't say anything at all about, about 
the reason so many volunteers went down there were to man the ships for the war effort, which was largely the biggest concern they had. There was a giant, giant power struggle probably in the union movement trying to assert themselves, which is why so much it spread so much and there was so much sympathy for it. Yeah, well, Lucy is a labour historian, so she's very, very closely tied to the unions. Yeah. So that um, she comes from that very strong union position, which is. But very like words like words like murder and stuff, and not not all that helpful. I don't think. This is the first time John mentions the killing. He spent an hour touring me around the town when I came to talk about the death of Merv. I can't tell if he's being defensive or just a nice host. Alrighty. Welcome back. Welcome. This is the only time John will refer to what happened as murder. We sit outside in John's well-tended garden. He places two white lever arch folders on the table. These are Walter's political papers from the time of the strike. The first thing he pulls out to show me is the camp song, sung by the strike breakers at night. Have you heard of the camp song? Yeah, but I've never been able to find it. I've got it for you. Oh my goodness. And grandfather wrote that because the strikers had their own song and they used to sing. He He wrote the camp song Walter was one of the conservative politicians who visited the strike breakers, or volunteer workers, as they called them, in the camps. Politicians would visit of an evening and give rousing speeches about ending the strike. This song does not exist. Oh, it doesn't really. Well, that's the song here. So there's the voluntary camp song. Oh, wow. And you can have that. That's for you to take away. To the tune of Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. Oh, okay, Glory, okay. In addition to these documents, all numbered and filed into plastic sleeves, are self-published books on the Wern family history, hundreds of pages, with entries on each member of the family. You can also find them in the New South Wales State Library. I suggest you take those in and have a good look, and I'll give you some yeah. grandfather's books to take too. There's a lot of um, recorded history in your family. Oh yeah, isn't my it? word, there is. Walter used his connections to bring strike breakers from Bingra, including his younger brother Reg. Yeah, grandfather was pretty active in in organising the volunteer movement for the government. He had a a carriage at Central Railway that he slept in mm. and met all the trains coming in and That's sent them off to the Rand, Randwick Racecourse or the showground or wherever they were bivouacked, and uh, he would have briefed them. For John, there's a lot to be proud of when it comes to his grandfather. Walter helped form the Australian Country Party. He also imported a South American beetle. It stopped the spread of an invasive cactus that plagued farms in northern New South Wales. They talked about Walter rather a lot because he was a bit of a shining beacon for the formation of the party. And he was also such a colourful character that the anecdotes and stories told about his humour and his personable nature and his jokes and his reciting poetry and his writing songs and playing pianos at at, uh, all the dances and balls. And considering he was a teetotaling Methodist, he was extremely effusive in his personality and his dealings with other people. And John's proud he's followed in his grandfather's footsteps. When I was young growing up, uh, I went to a wedding once and I was the best man 
and I had to make a speech. And I went to a guy, it was an important wedding for me, it was, it was a good mate and I went to a lot of trouble with the speech and it was really, really funny if I say so myself. And an old bloke came up to me after and he said, oh, God, you've got a lot of your grandfather in you. Not my father, but my grandfather, that's how, how young I was and how old he was. And how did that make you feel? Well, pretty good, because I knew, it, knew Walter's reputation as a raconteur. The next thing John hands me is Walter's account of Red shooting Merv. It runs to little over half a page long. And here's the weird thing. Underneath it is the description of Walter's involvement in importing the beetle to control the cactus. My family side of the incident. I can hardly concentrate as John speaks. It just seems so strange that you would jump from a killing to out-of-control cactus. It happened up near Broadway somewhere. No, it happened actually um, outside the children's hospital. Okay, at Camperdown. At Camperdown, That's which it. I um, just yeah, just diagonally across the road. They may have been. The they were driving. The I, I always thought thought that they were horse drawn vehicles, but they were motorised lorries apparently. That they, no, they were horse drawn. They were horse drawn. So there's an inaccuracy on our side already. Yeah, no, they had four four horses. Okay. As we talk, I feel like it's not so much an interview as a negotiation to come to some mutual agreement of what happened, to find some truth between the family story, the union story, and my research. So from Camperdown, from up there... So Bridge Road was the major thoroughfare to Darling Harbour. OK, where the docks and they were, loading a, they were loading down at Darling Harbour? No. The Hungry Mile? They, they, he'd just dropped off a load of jam... Mm-hmm. And they were driving back to the factory, back to Stanmore. They were going back empty, were they, when they hit the picket line? John is the more experienced negotiator. After all, like his grandfather Walter, John is an experienced politician. I'm going to learn a lot from you because you've done your homework on this. <laughs> all I've got is a motley, a motley set of hand-me-down, hand-me-down accounts. Yeah. But for me, if somebody asks me how it happened and I go, our family's account would be quite different to the union account, which I've also got here. John is talking about Lucy Taxer again. He's concerned the union narrative is biased and falsifies Reg's role. I'm really very sure that your account's going to be fair. Oh, good. <laughs> no, no, I really mean yeah, that because yeah. there's a lot of people that aren't being. Fairness with this story is very important to John. I'll call them. I'll call them lorries anyway. Horse drawn yep. lorry. I'll call yep. them lorry. The lorry ahead of them was being driven by another Bingo volunteer called Charlie Thorpe. Once again, this is this account is absolutely open to correction. They they stopped Charlie, and there must have been there must have been a lot of incidents of violence happening before that and around there about were, that time. There were. Which was probably the reason that the state government issued revolvers to the volunteers. In all my research, I've never been able to find proof of this. It remained a rumour. It's hard to imagine that every one of thousands would have been armed by the government. an issue that's never been resolved by historians, and I know people on the union side will say, oh, yeah, they gave the the volunteer workers guns, but no-one knows, you know, how many or if they were just bringing them down for their own protection from their properties. They think that Reg was issued with one. Really? For whatever reason. The rumour was the strike breakers were given police powers along with guns. I've never heard of that being a special constable, but 
the state government certainly issued revolvers. I don't know how many or to whom, but they certainly they certainly issued okay. revolvers. Because I would have thought he would have bought it from his property, but um, it's possible. I but, don't know. Yeah, yeah, but no, if that's that's the family, possible, if that's but I don't. Family story, I mean, then. firearms. There were plenty of firearms around, but they were pretty crude and old, and I don't know how many revolvers. But so, farmers would have had revolvers. I'm still thinking about the government issuing these men with guns. Imagine the Premier today arming one group of citizens against the other. This is one of the big unanswered questions in this incident. Did the government issue guns willy-nilly? Was Reg a special case because his brother was in Parliament? Anyway, the family stint on it is that Charlie Thorpe was dragged out of his lorry and assaulted. Mm -hmm. All this could be wrong, Francis, Mm. and that Reg came to his assistance. I mean, the language there, poor little Charlie Thorpe and, and, you know, lucky, big, strong Reg was behind Mm. him and all that sort of thing. That could all be guff. But Reg Wern was a big guy and he was an absolute champion boxer. Oh, was he? He was such a good boxer. He was never beaten in a fight. And believe me, there were plenty of fights in those days. That was sport. He was never beaten. Earlier, John showed me a photo of Reg taken at the time of the strike. He's a foot taller than the other strike breakers, clean-shaven, good-looking, and he's young. There's almost 20 years between Reg and his older brother, Walter. Later, when I'm doing the bedtime reading John's given me, I see that Reg, like Walter, holds legendary status in family law. There are tales of him rescuing a drowning man from a river when no one else would go in and racing his motorbike against a train to Sydney, still flying ahead even when a sidecar and passenger had come off. The boxing tents that used to travel wouldn't come to Bingra because he lived here. Anyway, he would have been a bit of a handful for the blokes on the picket line. So legend, I'm on a legend now, I'm starting to change my language, that he came to Charlie's assistant and Charlie was able to get back on his rig and keep going. And though Reg was then isolated to a certain extent, he he was sort of confronted by a number of these blokes. The family story isn't quite the official one. An inquest will later show there were only two men that confronted Reg. What was the name of the guy that was shot? Flanagan. Sorry? Flanagan. Flanagan, Merv Flanagan. There's even an account that Merv Flanagan hit him or or, or he was hit on the back of a head by a rock, at which case he issued a warning and said, look, I've got a a gun here. If you don't stop that, I'll shoot you. And, of course, he was a man of his word. And apparently the confrontation continued and they didn't back off. Yeah. That account said he fired a, sh- a warning shot into the ground into the in ground. front of yep. Flanagan. Is that consistent yeah. with Yeah, what? yeah, Okay, so he fired a warning yeah. shot at his feet and that didn't stop him either, so then he shot him dead. So how does a champion boxer come to be so intimidated by two guys that he chooses to shoot and kill? Find out next time on The Folded Lie. Francis, does anyone know what became of the Flanagan family? Look, yeah, they're a very poor family. Um, okay. They were, lived for a long time in Glebe. Did they? Near a pub in Glebe. Um, okay. The sons were um, well-known bootleggers. Oh, <laughs> were they? Okay. This is Merv's sons? Mm-hmm. Okay. That was quite an honourable 
occupation, I've got to add. No. It wasn't? <laughs> no. <laughs> what were they? Um, but, no, oh, okay. they found themselves on the wrong side of the law many a time. Oh, did so, they? Yeah. Oh, yeah, God. So. That doesn't make me feel any better. Yeah. But um, it just exemplifies the... Very, yeah, very poor family, very didn't get out of that cycle of poverty. Ellen Lee Beater is executive producer with assistance from Miles Martignoni. Thanks also to Mike Williams, Kirsty Melville, Jake Morecambe and Shane Anderson. This podcast was created with support from the City of Sydney and 2SER 107.3. Keep up to date with the latest episodes by subscribing on your favourite podcast app. I'm Frances Morgan. This is The Folded Lie. <laughs>